I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of palatable prose from this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy and I lead Economist Radio. On our menu this week, worried workers in China ancient eclipses shedding new light on the Earth's rotation, and a spot of bother in Brazil. But first, America's new business model was our cover line this week. Despite having more than a month to go before being inaugurated as President of the United States, Donald Trump is already making his presence felt on the business scene. His inauguration is still six weeks away, but Donald Trump has already sent shockwaves through American business. Chief executives and their company's shareholders are giddy at the president-elect's promises to slash burdensome regulation, cut taxes and boost the economy with infrastructure spending. Blue-collar workers are cock-a-hoop at his willingness to bully firms into saving their jobs. However, our leader argued that while deregulation and infrastructure investment should be welcomed, the Trump agenda remains worryingly unpredictable. American capitalism has flourished thanks to the predictable application of rules. If, at the margin, that rules-based system is superseded by an ad hoc approach in which businessmen must take heed and pay homage to the whim of King Donald, the long-term damage to America's economy will be grave. While such personal intervention isn't new, Trump's particular strategy could have uniquely far-reaching implications. Unlike the Depression, when Hoover and then Roosevelt got companies to act in what they, often wrongly, saw as the national interest, or 2009 when Mr Obama corralled the banks and bailed out Detroit, America today is not in crisis. Mr Trump's meddling is thus likely to be the new normal. Worse, his penchant for unpredictable and often vindictive bullying is likely to be more corrosive than the handouts most politicians favour. And the ultimate victims will be the voters he claims are his top priority. Over time, the damage will accumulate. Misallocated capital, lower competitiveness and reduced faith in America's institutions. Those who will suffer most are the very workers Mr Trump is promising to help. That is why if he really wants to make America great again, Mr Trump should lay off the protectionism and steer clear of the bullying right now. But of course Mr Trump isn't the only leader who risks alienating workers as we head over to an article in our China section. Li Dongsheng, who is 35, says he is too old to learn new skills and too old to get married. These days he can rarely find even odd jobs. He sleeps rough and has not visited his parents, who live hundreds of kilometres inland, for two years. Millions of people like Mr Li have powered China's rise over the past three decades, working in the boom towns that have prospered thanks to China's enthusiastic embrace of globalisation. Yet many are anxious and angry. As China's economy adapts, the same popular pressures felt in the West are arising there too. 
working-class Chinese, as well as members of the new middle class, fret about rising inequality, the impact of mass migration from the countryside into cities and job losses. And discontent is spreading. For example, members of the fast-growing middle class complain about the emergence of a new plutocracy. They say that the wealthiest owe their fortunes to corruption and personal relationships, not hard work. That's a particular problem for President Xi Jinping. Anti-elite sentiment, such as Britain and America are experiencing, is the party's worst fear. Mr Xi is a member of the party's upper class. His father was Mao's deputy prime minister until he was purged. That is why he has tried hard to portray himself as a common man, highlighting his experiences of living in a cave and working in the fields during Mao's cultural revolution. Mr Xi has decided to take some lessons from his new counterpart on the other side of the Pacific. He is appealing to popular nationalism too, with talk of the country's great rejuvenation and the Chinese dream, shades of Mr Trump's Make America Great Again. Even so, China's one-party system may soon be confronted with its underlying vulnerability. China does not have the complication of free elections, much less referendums. But the party feels that it needs to appear responsive to popular opinion in order to stay in power. That is becoming more difficult as economic growth slows and the main public demand for greater wealth becomes harder to satisfy. Mr Xi is trying to keep anger from spilling over by locking up dissidents with greater resolve than any Chinese leader has shown in years. He knows that global elites are under attack. That is making him all the more determined to protect China's. But it's time to go from worried workers to wrathful rabbis as we head to Israel, where there's a military mess in the making. Reports that the Israeli army's general staff is considering allowing women to serve in tank crews have caused shockwaves to ripple through the ranks. The problem is primarily religious. Religious Israelis have been making up a growing number of the soldiers in the Israel Defence Forces, or IDF, elite units for years now. But under the current chief of staff, Lieutenant General Gadi Eisenkot, there has been a deliberate attempt to curb the rabbi's power. So it could be tanks but no tanks for Israel's female soldiers. The rabbis have been warning that if more combat units are mixed, their students who abide by strict Jewish Orthodox codes of gender segregation will refuse to serve in them. The official position is that religious soldiers can always serve in their own separate formations and that decisions to allow women to serve in combat are made according to strictly operational considerations. Ultimately, the battle could risk alienating the rest of their soldiers. Many of the army's field officers now feel that they are being used as political footballs. As one put it this week, our job is to be an efficient fighting force, not a lab for social experiments or a battleground in this country's cultural wars. But it's time now to head to an article in our business section. It digs into Brazil's ongoing struggles with corruption, a problem that might need more than a well-staffed tank to solve. Accounting scandals are nothing new in Brazil. At least, governance gurus joke, all the imbroglios and a three-year-old law against bribery have prompted companies to replace what people used to call corruption departments with compliance offices. 
How ironic, then, that Brazil's latest affair involves a firm that is meant to ensure that firms stay on the straight and narrow. The revelations. On December 5th, it emerged that America's Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB, fined the Brazilian arm of Deloitte, the biggest of the big four accounting networks, $8 million for what Claudius Modesti, the watchdog's director of enforcement, called the most serious misconduct we've uncovered. Some see this as evidence of wider problems. Critics of auditors will cite the Deloitte case as further evidence that the world is suffering from an outbreak of accounting fraud. The PCAOB has just fined Deloitte Mexico $750,000 for tampering with documents in an audit there. Last year, EY, another big four firm, failed to flag problems at Toshiba that forced the Japanese firm to restate its accounts by $1.9 billion. But as our article argued, it's not committing fraud but being caught that's more indicative of the way things are going. Still, the overall trend around the world has been for accounting to get cleaner. In America, one good measure of this is the size of the biggest accounting restatement in a given year – it has plummeted over the past decade from over $6 billion to under $1 billion. Standards outside America have improved too, partly because Europe and many emerging economies, including those of Latin America, have adopted common international accounting standards. Deloitte's Brazilian fiasco is depressing, but at least skullduggery is being uncovered and punished. Now it's time to go from accounting's big four to economist radio's big four. Yes, money talks, babbage, the economist asks and the week ahead as we take a look back at some highlights from economist radio this week. On Money Talks, we took a look at the bank at the centre of the crisis in Italy. So it looks touch and go still. If they can't raise the money, what happens? Does the bank go under or is it bailed out? No, I think it would be bailed out. It's too important in Italy to be allowed to go under. And on our science and technology show, Babbage, we investigated what Albert Einstein got wrong. On this particular topic, it does seem that Einstein was wrong. He thought that, well, maybe there are hidden variables underneath the surface that we can't quite uh, detect. Um, But work in the 1950s and 60s after his death showed that that's not the case. Meanwhile, on The Economist Asks, I delved into the art of caricature with my guests. I often find that it helps me a lot to hear the voice of the person when I'm drawing them because it does reveal something very deep about them. Well, I mean, it sort of begins and ends with the wig, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, in her case, you know, that look, that hair is is my starting point. Then the week ahead took a look at seismic changes in Gambia. Ahead of the elections, most diplomats seem to think that even if Mr Barrow did get a decent share of the vote or a win, that Mr Jame would rig the vote in his favour. But the mistake he appears to have made is that he did actually allow the polling to be relatively transparent. But we need to move on to our science section and sharpish, as it turns out that the days could be getting shorter. As the well-known Australian philosopher Kylie Minogue once pointed out, it can be a source of comfort to remember that no matter what else is happening, the world still turns. Unfortunately, things are not quite so simple. Many factors can mean that over time, the Earth's spin can slow or speed up, lengthening or shortening our days. But more data are needed to understand the complete effect. And extra data are exactly what a team led by Leslie Morrison a retired professional astronomer, have just provided. In a study just published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society, they use observations made by ancient Chinese, Babylonian, Greek and Arab astronomers 
to reconstruct the history of Earth's rotation over the past two and a half millennia. Dr Morrison focused on eclipses, since these were often seen as portents. Both solar and lunar eclipses were commonly recorded by contemporary observers. Building on work begun in the 1990s, Dr Morrison and his colleagues collated 424 such observations of 250 eclipses that happened between 720 BC and 1600 AD. And the results? After crunching the numbers, the team found that the actual rate at which days have been shortening over the past couple of millennia is 1.8 milliseconds per century, considerably slower than the 2.3 milliseconds predicted. But an intriguing side effect of the data might bring the astronomy down to Earth. The researchers also found small but cyclical patterns in the rate of change that repeat themselves over decades, as well as intriguing hints of longer cycles with time periods of thousands of years. Exactly what geophysical goings-on such cycles represent is one for the geologists to work out. Of course, if geologists are going to grapple with time, they may need to rock around the clock. Meanwhile, the amateur geologists at the Economist Letters section have been digging into our inbox, unearthing gems among the letters to the editor. First up, a world leader takes umbrage at a Bayo column. From Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, President of Peru, Lima. Bayo states that Carlos Moreno was my former doctor. Article November 12th. He was never my doctor. Noted. John Ferry wrote in to dispute our defence of civic nationalism. The distinction you made between civic and ethnic nationalism was a bit simplistic. Article The New Nationalism, November 19th. Proactive civic nationalism unfortunately shares some of the iniquitous elements traditionally associated with ethnic nationalism, namely the framing of something within society as malign and foreign and then rallying patriots against that presence or influence. A modern liberal approach should be accepting of multi-layered sovereignty, identity and nationhood, and should at most advance a type of soft cosmopolitan patriotism which never goes as far as nationalism. If we are to alter where the lines are drawn at all, we should be looking to reach out instead of retreating in. For me, that means I can identify as a Scottish borderer, a Scot, a Brit and a European. Civic nationalism demands that I elevate only one of those in political and identity terms. And reader Donald Frey noticed something unusual on last week's cover, showing Donald Trump and Nigel Farage as drummer boys. Regarding your cover on the new nationalism, any seasoned drummer over the age of 60 will tell you that Donald Trump and Nigel Farage are holding their drumsticks backwards. That is, each holds his right stick with a left-handed grip and his left stick with the right-handed grip. Please feel free to check with Charlie Watts for verification. Regardless of whether or not this juxtaposition was intentional, it does indicate the direction in which these politicians want to march their respective countries. Well, I hope that's drummed up some of your support for our tasting menu. As we march off into the sunset, send us any thoughts at Economist Radio or an email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs> 